Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest, like Melchizedek, appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a, of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Now the main point of what we are, trying, of what we are saying is this. We do have such a priest, high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Amen. Yeah, welcome again to Mosaic. And of course, speaking of journeys, you may know we have a couple of teams that are on their way back from a couple of short-term mission trips our church has taken. One is to the Dominican Republic. The other one's been to Rwanda. And so if one of those is a loved one of yours, I'm sure you'll be glad to have them back, as will we all. Uh, but the real reason we're calling this the journey is because we're looking in the book of Hebrews at another journey that another group of people took in their day. The writer of Hebrews is addressing these first century Christians that were journeying in their day through pain, through persecution, through loss of life, through loss of property, through being alienated from the culture and the people around them. And it had gotten so bad and life had gotten so difficult that they were on the verge of giving up faith in Jesus all together, what did they need? Well, if we'll pull the lens of the book back just a bit and sort of zoom out to a 30,000 foot view, we find that by the end of the book, the writer has actually taken us on a journey as well. By the time we get to the end of the book, as we'll see in a few weeks, we end in a place that the writer calls a city. It calls it a city, and this is downtown Austin. Some of you may have thought Austin's heaven. It's actually not, just so you'll know. But anyway, just to get in your mind, we end up in a place kind of like that, but that's not where we begin or even live most of our life. The, by contrast, we begin, the book says, in a place called the wilderness, or some of you may know it, um, <laughs> Lubbock, Texas. I'm sorry, that was just too easy. I just, that's the word in the... And the Greek for wilderness is Lubbock. But what it's saying is, like us, the children of Israel, and like the children of Israel, we, 
begin life in a place like this. We move through a wilderness. The wilderness was a, a place full of hardship and of hurt, uh, full of heat by day and freezing by night, full of starvation and hunger and scorpion bites and snake bites and suffering all around. And so when you ask yourself, why is life so hard? The writer of Hebrews is telling you what you already know. You live life in this world like it's in a wilderness. See, the word even wilderness itself is the, the, the Greek word eremos. It means uninhabitable places. It's showing us that we don't quite fit this world and this world doesn't quite fit us. And you know this. As a pastor, I know this. Some people in this church are somebody's always going through a, a wilderness place or a time or a patch in their life. Someone's always sick. Someone's always suffering in some way. There's always some marriage that's in trouble. There's always someone who's facing the, the loss of a job, maybe, or even worse, the, the loss of a loved one or their own life. Life is lived in the wilderness. What do we need? What do we need to see to make it through the wilderness and to the city of God, the eternal city, in the end. What the writer here in the middle section of the book presses us to see is that we need three things today. Three things to make it and make it well in the wilderness. First, you need to see you got a better hope, you got a better covenant, because you have a better priest. Better hope, covenant, and priest. I'll be briefer on one and two and major in the third. Let's begin here and see why we have a better hope. Here we go. You know, one of the most amazing things to me about not just faith in general, but about Christianity in specific, is that it just won't go away. (laughs) It just won't go away. No matter what cultural experts tell us or surveys or polls say, uh, if you were alive back in the 60s, you may remember the famous cover that Time Magazine put out, probably its most famous cover, and the cover asked this question. It said, is God dead? And of course, yeah, somebody said, no, he's not. That's right. Uh, and so this, was, this sort of sparked what's called the death of God movement, which confidently predicted the end of faith and religion and Christianity uh, around the same time, the Atlantic Monthly. Now, the magazine confidently predicted the end of Christianity, but 60 years later, something happened. That same magazine, the Atlantic Monthly, actually published a retraction. And the title of the article was called this, Why God will not die because they were looking honestly as they had to at sheer population statistics and the explosion of Christianity especially charismatic Christianity around the world in places like Brazil and China and South Korea and what they found was of course Christianity was exploding Uh, Stanley Fish Dr. Fish is a, a secular speaker thinker social critic and he sort of sums up the whole thing when He said a few years ago, when he was asked by uh, magazines and newspapers, when they asked him, Dr. Fish, what do our universities, our nation's leading academic institutions, what do they need to really be able to talk about to be able to engage the hard interests of incoming 21st century students? Stanley Fish said, I answered like a shot, religion. Religion. He said, that's what you need to be able to talk about to engage students today. Why? Well, all of this shows us, again, what your heart already knows, which is that the human heart runs on hope. The human heart simply runs on hope. It runs on hope front to back. You can lie to yourself all day, tell yourself there's no such thing as hope. Cultural experts can lie to us all day long and say there's no such thing as hope. Oh, but your heart won't believe it. It knows it's a lie. 
just like when you've been on the end of that three-day, five-day fast, and you say, you're, hum- you know, you're, you're telling yourself, I'm not hungry. Your stomach says, yes, you are. You know, you're lying to it. It knows you're hungry. Your heart knows that you need hope. We know this. I think lots of people know this. I think Jen Erso from Star Wars Rogue One knows this, by the way. Yeah. When she was asked, catch this, when she was asked in the movie, of course, why is it you people keep fighting for what you believe in? Why don't you just quit and give up? You know, what enables you to go from your wilderness towards what your goal is? She said this. She said, because we have hope. Rebellions that is going against the grain are built on hope. I think we know it. I think Jen Erso knows it. I think maybe... Above all these people, I think Andy Dufresne from the Shawshank Redemption knows this. Man in prison, if you know the story, he says his hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And no good hope ever really dies. You see, they're just telling us what our hearts already know. That if there's no God, there's no such thing as hope. Yet no matter how much we're told there's no God, our hearts still long for hope. No good hope ever really dies. And the writer of Hebrews would agree. Look at this, verse 18. He writes, The former regulation is set aside because it was weak. And what's the word? Useless. Yeah. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Catch this. He's saying you can only draw near to God and get a better hope. If you consider another part of the Bible useless, <laughs> did you catch it? That's actually what the writer is saying. He's saying there's an earlier part of the Bible that's useless. That's staggering. I don't know if you've ever seen it like that. Well, why is the Bible calling part of itself, in a way, useless? Here's why. The law, this shows us, the law is amazing at diagnosing sin. And for that, it is helpful. And for that, the New Testament uses that, and so can we. But the law, like a doctor, is great at telling you what's wrong with you. But could you imagine, if when you saw a doctor, if he walked into the room, only gave you a diagnosis, here's what's wrong with you, you've got cancer, then turned around and walked out. What would you say about that doctor? You'd say, He's useless, yeah. He's useless. That's a useless doctor. Why? Because just telling you what's wrong with you can't really deal with your ultimate need. Great to know. Great to know where to begin. Great to know what's wrong with me, doc. But what's going to help me? What's going to cure me? What's going to heal me? See, a diagnosis, like the law, is, only, is really only useless in the end. It doesn't improve your condition. And the reason, therefore, the writer of Hebrews says that God has set aside the law as the basis for our relationship with him was so that he can now meet your ultimate need, which the law never could. And this is saying our ultimate need here is a hope, a better hope, that there's a God who is real and who loves you unconditionally apart from your moral performance, apart from how well you can do this stuff or keep the regulations or the commands. And see, listen, if you're hope in life, some of you, we grow up in the South, we grow up in traditional religious culture. Some of us, we come into church thinking, man, my hope is just to be a good person. Pastor Morgan, I hope I can just be a good person. My real hope is I can just raise good people. Oh, this is Shoney, by the way. That, that's not good enough. That's a lower hope. Your hopes are too low. You need to get a better hope, Right? You need a bigger boat, reference Jaws. You need a better hope in the end. And by the way, none are good. 
right? Romans 3. None are righteous. No, not one. This is telling us we have a better hope. We've got a better hope than secular culture, which tells us that we're all alone. And we've got a better culture than any moral religious system has, which just tells us that we're on our own. We've got a better hope because we have unconditional love. That's our hope as a Christian. And here's why this is so great and why we need this in our lives. Because when someone loves you unconditionally, let me ask you, what does it do for you? What does it do to you? I think you know, you know, listen, I didn't say someone loves you without boundaries, right? No, real love is boundaryless. Love without boundaries is really just abuse. No, this isn't boundaryless love. This is just conditionless love. But unconditional love does what the writer of Hebrews says. The word he uses is this. It perfects you. It makes you better. It grows you. It motivates you. It gives your heart hope that you're not either alone or on your own. These three remain, the Bible says. Faith, what? Hope and love. We're unavoidably hope-based creatures. The better hope of the gospel says, you know what? Nope, not a good person. But you're not on your own either. Your selfish choices, bad things you've done don't have the last word. Our better hope is telling us that his love in our wilderness can come in and lift us no matter where we are today. That's number one. That's our better hope. You say, well, how can I get this? Where does this come from? It's from number two, seeing this, what we also need in the wilderness. It's a better covenant. Let's look at verse 20 and see what it says. Hebrews goes on to say, And it was not the hope. The hope was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. That's the lesser hope. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and won't change his mind. You're a priest forever. And because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. What is a covenant? The writer uses this word all the time. What's a covenant? Well, I'd like to give you a few pictures that I hope can illustrate what a biblical covenant is. There are a few couples here who are become married in our church recently. There's one couple, Jamie and Candace Smith right there. Yeah, that was, I took that picture, by the way, I was there, yeah. And may you men all be so lucky as to have your wife look at you like that on your wedding day. That's a nice look right there. Here's another couple who's been recently married. Yeah, the, the Jenkins, Jeff and Nina. Yeah, you just heard from her a minute ago. Uh, another couple just recently married, Joe and Amber Deesing, great couple. And finally, a fourth couple you may have seen. Yeah, look at that. There's a, another couple right there. And man, I don't know where that guy went, but that guy's good looking. Bring him back. I like that guy. Um, more of him, less of this guy. You can get rid of that. That's actually depressing, by the way. You can just go ahead and move that right along. Now, I show you these just to show off, basically, for a minute, my ridiculously good-looking friends and wife. But if you're single here and you're not married, don't want to be married, not going to ever be married, let me tell you, we affirm you right where you are. That's one of the key crucial points theologically of a church, that we ought to affirm singles and marriage as being co-heirs in Christ in, in a way. And uh, if you don't believe that, just ask one of our 120 singles who were at that uh, singles conference a couple weeks ago. You'll hear a little bit more about that next week. But I show you these just to kind of try to illustrate what a biblical covenant looks like. What's a covenant? 
Let's move back into the Old Testament where the writer takes us. Deuteronomy 5, uh, the people of Israel are standing uh, in the wilderness. They're on their, the, the, the way, the verge to crossing over into the promised land. And Moses says this to them in their wilderness. You are standing here in order to enter into, there's the word, a covenant with the Lord your God. A covenant, there's the word again, the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people that he may be your God. What is a covenant? Two things, two kinds of language being used here. First, there's loving language. He says, God's saying, I want to make you my people. I want to be your God. See, there's affection here. This isn't uh, uh, just unaffectionless or affectionless unemotional relationship. No, God wants to be joined forever to people. There's loving language, but second, there's also at the same time legal language. Legal language, because this loving relationship is sealed with what? An oath, yeah, a binding legal statement. So, this is a relationship that's more loving, way more intimate, than just a contractual relationship. But it's also a relationship that's more obligating, way more binding than just a friendship. See, a covenant is, therefore, an amazing blend of law and love. Way more than legal. Oh, but it's way more than merely loving because it is legal. And this is kind of hard for us, I think, to get today because we base way more uh, in our culture, our relationships on the idea of modern commitment and less on biblical covenant. Modern commitment uh, looks kind of like this. We say today, we say to people, uh, I will be in relationship with you, and I will do my part as long as you do your part. And once you stop doing your part, which is defined however I want to define it, by the way, which is, of course, your part is to make me happy. And if you ever stop making me happy, I exercise my right to basically bail on the relationship, decommit at any point. But, 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 in a biblical covenant, two people look at each other and they both say, I commit to fulfill my promise to you no matter if you fulfill your promise to me. It takes two parties. Both sides have to say that can't just be one. Can you see the difference? And I think that this is why we have a hard time understanding when, uh, what God means, what he's after when he comes to us and he says, I don't want to just be committed to you. I want to make a covenant with you. See, in the strongest possible human terms, human language, he's saying, oh, in the strongest possible emotional terms, strongest possible legal terms, God is saying, that's how much I want you. Is that how much you want me? By the way, let's just affirm and say that not all relationships are going to be covenant relationships in your life. I think it goes without saying that the relationship I have with my, for example, internet company is not going to be the same kind of relationship as I have with my wife, Carrie, because, you know, I like my internet company and all that, but let's just say someone comes and can show me better, faster service at a cheaper rate. Guess what's going to happen? Bye-bye. Nice knowing you. appreciate you, you know. But here's the point. If the deepest strongest, most life-altering relationships we know are covenant relationships, why wouldn't our relationship with God be the same? 
if not even deeper. And of course, it is the same. It is deeper. It ought to be deeper. Therefore, if you're here and you're saying, you know what, Morgan, you know, I kind of like coming to Mosaic. I like the free coffee and stuff and children's ministry and the stuff you guys do around the world. But Morgan, now that you press me, you ask me who Jesus is. You know, I think he's just kind of whoever I want him to be. Someone wants him to be. He's a nice guy, teacher. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on. You know what you've just done? You've just boxed yourself out of a relationship with the biblical God. See, God only relates through covenant. You may be relating to something, but it's not to this God. Look at the history of God in his Bible. To Adam, right? Uh, To Noah, to Moses, David, right on down the line. He comes and says, I want to make my covenant. I will make my covenant with you. No more playing around. No more using me like you use the internet company. I operate on the basis of covenant. No more, no less. Oh, but if you know your Bible a bit, you may be recognizing, feeling that there's maybe a kind of a problem here, right? Because a covenant works both ways because it takes two to make a thing go right. It takes two to make it out of sight. A covenant requires two parties. Yeah, you're back. You see, if a covenant requires two parties, which it did, if it takes two to make a thing go right, well, what would happen to that covenant if one of the two parties was serially adulterous, seriously abusive or neglectful or failed to keep their end? And that's exactly what happened in the Old Testament Israel. For centuries, they were serially unfaithful to, adulterous toward the covenant they had made with Almighty God. What would God do? Oh, finally, he came to them after centuries in the book of Jeremiah, which Hebrews quotes. And God said, the days are coming when I'm going to make a new covenant with you. One day I'm going to write my law on your heart. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Take out that heart of stone. Your sins, all your lawless acts, I'm going to remember no more. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far I'm going to put your sins from me. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. One not based on you keeping up your end. I'm going to keep my part. I'm going to keep your part some way, somehow. I'm going to make a better covenant. Better covenant. If you're a Christian today, I want you to know you have a God who hadn't just made a commitment to you. He's made a covenant with you. And if you're in a wilderness moment today, a wilderness place, I want to encourage you, exhort you to lift up the covenant you've made with God. You say, God, you have promised, you sworn by yourself, you never leave me, you'll never forsake me. I need you to come and act in my life now, God. And he will do it. He has sworn a covenant with you. And maybe it's sometimes, yeah, he's calming the storm around his child. Sometimes he acts by calming the storm within his child. But either way, he's coming in to act because he has made a covenant with you. He's promised to act. You got a better covenant, church. Lift it up today. You say, well, how? All right. Sounds good. How can I get all of that? A better hope and a better covenant. It's through the third final thing here in this section of the book. We need to see in the wilderness, we need to see that we need, number three, a better priest. You say, well, all right, Morgan, that's nice. A better priest. Do I need a priest? I'm like, I'm not Roman Catholic. It sounds like a real ancient, you know, ancient religion, kind of weird, funky term. Do people really need priests? Do I need a priest? Hang on. Let me try to show you. Look at verse 11. It said, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, 
Why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. What this one verse answers is two questions. Who is Jesus and why did Jesus come? First, who is Jesus? The writer makes a comparison of Jesus to this shadowy guy. In the Old Testament, a guy named Melchizedek. Who was Melchizedek? (laughs) That sounds, by the way, like an answer you might give on Bible Jeopardy. Alex, the answer is, who is Melchizedek? You're right, Morgan, for $1,000. All right. It's Melchizedek. Couldn't help it. Melchizedek was a person mentioned once and briefly way back in no man's land in Genesis. And Melchizedek, we see, was a king, king of a place called Salem. But he wasn't just a king, he was also a priest. He offered sacrifices to God for his people. He functioned like a king and a priest. And that's something that you never saw in the Old Testament because kings and priests were always separate. The king was one role. The king uh, could protect you. The king could save you. could come and could deliver you. But yet he ruled over you because he was a king. He never served you. But the priest, by contrast, could serve you. What serve you? He didn't rule over you. He walked with you. He offered sacrifices on behalf of your sins to draw you nearer to God. And so by mentioning this guy, the writer of Hebrews, he's like a, like a Christian rapper name dropping. He's the house DJ sampling something from the past to make his point, which is this, that Jesus is something you've never seen before. He is like a king. He's going to represent God to the people. And he's going to be like a priest who represents the people to God. He's a king priest like Melchizedek. That's who Jesus is. But why then did he come? Oh, this verse shows us the answer as well. The answer lies in the term high priest. The word's high priest. This is saying he's not just a priest. He is our high priest. Well, what did the Jewish high priest do that no one else could do? Well, for centuries, on Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, the Jewish high priest was the only one who could go in to what was called the most holy place to offer sacrifices on behalf of his people. And to do that, a week before that one day, the high priest was put in seclusion. He, was, he lived by himself to make sure he only ate clean food. Nothing could defile him. Nothing or no one impure would touch him or come before him. He'd wash his body. He'd prepare his heart. And then the night before the Day of Atonement, the high priest would stay up all night reading the Torah to purify his soul. And then on Yom Kippur, that day, the Day of Atonement, he would bathe from head to toe and be clothed in pure unstained white linen and then he'd go into the most holy place and first offer a sacrifice an animal sacrifice on behalf of his own sins then he would come out he would bathe again be reclothed in new unstained white linen garments and he'd go back into the holy of holies to offer now a sacrifice on behalf of his fellow priests then he'd come out he'd wash a third time be redressed a third time in pure unstained white linen head to toe and go back into the holy of holies for a third and final time to now offer sacrifices on behalf of all the people All this was done in public. The temple was a crowded place. They'd watch him come and go, bathe, dress behind a screen, but the people were there. They watched him go back and forth. Why? Because he was their representative. They were there to cheer him on. They knew that he represented them before God and to make sure he was as pure as pure could be. And now that you know this, you know why. 
if you've read it, that the vision God gave to one of his prophets, a man by the name of Zechariah, years later, was so offensive and so mind-blowing. In the, in the book that bears his name, in the book of Zechariah, God gives Zechariah a vision of the high priest of his day, Joshua, in the Holy of Holies, in his white linen, covered in human excrement. It says this, now Joshua was dressed, it's using a euphemism here, in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. This is Joshua, the high priest, standing before God in the Holy of Holies, covered in excrement, absolutely defiled. Zechariah couldn't believe what he saw. What was God showing him? God was showing him what he looked like, what Joshua looked like, what we look like coming before God on the terms of our own best efforts. Our own best efforts, our own merits to be a good person. God should let us in because we're good people. He's showing us that we are covered in filthy clothes. But look at this, Zechariah 3. Just as Zechariah was about to despair, he heard God say, Take off his filthy clothes. Then God said to Joshua the high priest, See, look, I've taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Listen, listen, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And there's no way, of course, Zachariah could believe what he was hearing. He was hearing, God, you're telling us we've been doing this, sacrificing for years to come in, but it still made us no better. We're still not clean and pure before you. God's saying, that's right. And I'm going to give you a vision of what's going to happen on a single day, not through a somehow or through a somewhere or some way, but through a someone. One day it'll happen. You say, how so? Like this. Centuries later, another Joshua showed up. Because you see, Joshua and Jesus are the same name in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The name is Yeshua. Another Yeshua, another Joshua came, and he had the final day of the ultimate atonement. One week before Jesus went to the cross, he began his entry, his preparation. He came to the temple, and the night before he went to his trial on the cross, he didn't sleep either. He stayed up all night in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying for us, interceding for us, but this time the crowd didn't cheer him. No, what do they do? They mocked him. This time his friends didn't offer him words of encouragement. They abandoned him instead of being clothed in fine linen. He was stripped of his clothes, and instead of being bathed in water, it says he was bathed in the spit of the very people he made. What was going on? Oh, God was making him who knew no sin, to be sin for us. He was removing the sin in the land on a single day that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, and then when he came before his own father, Jesus, you see, this book tells us, didn't come, aren't you glad, with the blood of bulls and goats. He didn't have to anymore. He said, oh, daddy, father, I'm coming with my own blood, my own precious blood. I have shed for the sin of the people. I've taken away their sin in a single day. And here's why, here's why, church. You don't just need a priest for your salvation, which you do. It's also for your transformation. And let me show you why. Because the people here, you ask, why do they even need a priest? Here's why. It was to do away with their guilt. Their guilt. And now you're saying, oh God, here we go, making me feel guilty in church again. Come on, man. No such thing as guilt. We live in a 21st century. No right, no wrong, nothing to feel guilty about. Oh, nothing to feel guilty about. Let me just tell you, you don't want to live. 
in a culture which does away with guilt. You don't want to. You don't want to, because you don't want to live with people who do away with guilt. What if, what if someone's teenager were out drinking and driving and drunk Johnny ran over your child? And what if their parent, the Johnny's parents came to you and said, oh, Johnny, he's not really guilty. Nothing for him to feel bad about. No such thing as right or wrong. Besides, he ran over your child in the past. So you should just move on and get over it, huh? See, listen, guilt, even Sigmund Freud knew, is the price we pay for civilization. And if you want to know, I'm going to apply this, you want to know, by the way, in part, America, why we can't deal with our racial history, it's because we experience a deep sense of guilt, even at the same time we say guilt doesn't exist. What can you do with that? What do you do with that? Oh, we feel guilt, but we say guilt doesn't exist. But listen, if we can't acknowledge guilt, if we can't face the past, we can't be forgiven. Or maybe even better, we can't make things right. Oh, we need guilt. Without guilt, we fall apart. Oh, but with guilt, we fall apart too. Why can't some of you rest? Because you feel guilty over not being productive. Why don't you, you know, why can't you begin that relationship or begin that, uh, to get to know people? You say, oh, I feel guilty for my past. I think things are going to come back and overshadow my present. Why can't some of you come to church sometimes? You feel guilty over things you've done. Why can't you let go of your parents' dreams for you? Some of you, it's because you can't let go of the guilt you feel over not being able to live up to their expectations. You can't live with guilt. You can't live without it. What do we need? Oh, we need someone who deals with our guilt. A great high priest who for once for all represents us to God because he is God. But yet he represents God to us because he is us. And now he can empower us to face what we've done, remove the guilt, and now maybe, maybe, just maybe, we can build a better life, a beautiful life, out of the ashes we've been living in. Think about, think about church. Oh, think about Judas and Peter right? Both of them betrayed Jesus. Both of them denied Jesus. Both of them experienced deep guilt over what they had done. And yet one of them, Judas, he couldn't live with his guilt. Felt so guilty. He ended his own life, put himself to death. What happened to Peter though? He denied Jesus, didn't he? What happened to him? He felt guilty. Oh, but what happened? He only became one of the greatest leaders in human history. Why? Peter knew he had a great high priest. Jesus came to him and said, oh, Simon, Simon, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat, asked to cut you down. He's asked to leave you in your guilt, but I prayed for you, Simon, and once you've returned, you'll be able to strengthen your brothers. Peter saw he had a great high priest. Oh, he could deal with his guilt. It enabled him now to go and face his brothers, face what he had done, face the betrayal and the wrongdoing he had done. But now he could grow through it. And in the end, he never betrayed Jesus once, ever, once forever. Again, Peter went to his death knowing he was loved. Let me ask you, what wilderness moment are you in the day? You feel hopeless? Friend, you've got a better hope. You got a better hope. Are you feeling unloved? Oh, you can know that you're loved apart from your performance. You got a better covenant. Are you dealing with guilt today? Some ways, I hope that you are in some ways. C.S. Lewis said, guilt is to the conscience. It's pain is to the body. See, we can't live with it. Can't live without it. The good news is we've got a great high priest who enables us to acknowledge wrongdoing and yet wipes away the power of it. 
We can make it through any wilderness moment because of our better hope, our better covenant, our better priest. I hope you can say amen. Let's go to him now in prayer as we ask for these things.